Voila. Good morning, Midland Pre. My name is Jeremy. I'm a preaching pastor here. Delighted to have you. This is your first Sunday, your fifth Sunday, your 500th, whatever it may be. Welcome here. We are so glad you're here to worship with us today. As you saw, we have uh, just today initiated a new sermon series. We finished up the eight characteristics of a disciple, and today we're transitioning into an expository study or a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John is an interesting book, but before we start reading from it, I thought I might read to you from another interesting book. Some of you may recognize this one. It sort of follows the genre of if you give a mouse a cookie, only this one is entitled How to Make an Apple Pie. Anybody like apple pie? All right, very good. What could be more American than an apple pie, right? Well, here we go. This is entitled, How to Make an Apple Pie and See the World by Marjorie Priceman. It goes like this. Making an apple pie is really very easy. First, Get all the ingredients at the market. Apples, flour, sugar, cinnamon, salt, butter, egg. Then mix them well, bake, and serve. Unless, of course, the market is closed. And if it is, well then all you have to do is fly to Italy for some superb semolina wheat. Go to France to get an elegant chicken. They lay the best of eggs. Go to Sri Lanka for the best cinnamon in the entire world. Go to England for a beautiful dairy cow and to Jamaica for sugar cane. And on the way there, don't forget to pick up some salt water in a jar. Finally, finish your trip out by stopping in Vermont for some apples. Now all you have to do is mill the wheat into flour, grind the karundu bark into cinnamon, evaporate the seawater from salt, Boil the sugar cane, persuade the chicken to lay an egg, milk the cow, turn the milk into butter, slice the apples, mix ingredients, and bake the pie. Now, while the pie is cooling, be sure to invite some friends over to share it with you. Oh, and by the way, remember that apple pie is best when topped with vanilla ice cream, which you can get at the local market. But if the market happens to be closed, then just eat it plain, all right? Okay, there you have it. Apple pie made fresh for you this Sunday morning. In this book, obviously what the author is doing is using these key ingredients to um, illustrate geography. And so she's taking the children around the world but also using the uh, means of the apple pie. But in the end, she's saying these three or four or however many ingredients make up an apple pie. Now, as we begin the book of 1 John, I think in a lot of ways it's very similar because what he's going to do is say, hey, here's the church. It's a diverse body of people. But essentially, there are three key ingredients. And what you do is you take these and you stir them all together and then you go share it 
with somebody else. And that is the way the church functions and fulfills its purpose. So today, what I'd like to do for you then is I'm going to examine those key ingredients, and not only today, but throughout the rest of the study of the, first, of the book of 1 John. And what we'll see is basically that life, light, and love are the key ingredients of the church. Think of it as L-cubed, if you will. Life, light, and love. Now, in order to do that, what I'm going to first do is I want to take a step back. Because obviously we're here at this point in time. But I want us to remove ourselves, in a sense, from our space-time perspective, from our temporal way of looking at things, and step back and see the bigger picture, in other words, God's way of viewing the world. So, I have a quote for you up on the board, and it's, it's, it's thick. It takes listening. But I think, I'm, I'm actually quite sure, you're capable of following with me in this. So, let us then step back into eternity past and see things from a perspective entirely different from our own. This is what happened, in a sense, God's motivation, His driving factor in creating the world. It goes like this. John Piper, in his book Desiring God, says this. In creation, God went public with a glory that reverberates joyfully between the Father and the Son. Here's a key sentence. There is something about the fullness of God's joy that inclines itself to overflow. There is an expansive quality to his joy. It wants to share itself. The impulse to create the world was not from weakness, as though God were lacking in some perfection that creation could supply. No. Instead, it is like this. It is no argument of the emptiness or deficiency of a fountain that is inclined to overflow. God loves to behold his glory reflected in his works. So the eternal happiness of the triune God spilled over in the work of creation and redemption. That's what we think of, creation, redemption. But that is not ultimately the purpose. Since his original happiness was God's delight in his own glory, therefore the happiness that he has in all his works of creation and redemption is nothing other than delight in his own glory. This is why God has done all things, from creation to consummation, for the preservation and display of his glory. All of his works are simply the spillover of his infinite exuberance for his own excellence. What a beautiful statement is that. That God, like a fountain, out of joy in and of himself, spills over into us from the infinite exuberance of his own excellence life light love all spilling over from the father through the son to us this light this life this love is going to spill over flow into us and flow through us and i think that's the message of first john where the apostle is simply saying hey look This is so awesome. You absolutely must experience it. 
And so at the beginning of his book, he writes like this. Hear my dear beloved children, my church, fellowship of the saints. Here is what I want. This is John's purpose in writing the book. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that for this reason, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, through a series of repetition and a bunch of different circumstances, the Apostle John is going to emphasize life, light, and love in the fellowship of the King. Lord of the Rings, number two. Here we are. Gandalf, the ring, the hobbits, the elves, the dwarves, everyone coming together. Why? Because they have this power that has to be dealt with and they don't know what to do. And so this strange and motley crew come together for a specific purpose. So too is the idea of koinonia or fellowship. Here's the theme for today if you're looking at it. That the fellowship or koinonia, same word, is basically a purpose-driven missional community filled with light, life, and love. That is what the church is. It is a purpose-driven missional community that should be filled with these three ingredients. Life, light, and love. The way we're going to look at this today basically is like this. There are four verses. Each verse contains something about some of that stuff. And so what I'm going to do for my structure is basically go one, two, three, and four. But instead of starting with verse one, I'm going to start with verse two, and then I'm going to go to verse one, and then I'm going to go to three. So to go verse two, verse one, verse three. Basically one, two, three in a sense. And we're going to look at these various things. So the first thing I'll look at is the life. And I'll talk about what that is, its source, its duration, and its quality. The next thing I'll look at is jumping back to verse 1. We'll look at the senses and how John uses those to communicate the importance of his message. Three word sets, having heard and seen, having beheld, and having touched. And then the final thing that we'll wrap up with is ultimately the purpose, the mission, the fellowship, or the koinonia, the group. Of believers. You'll see that verse 4 isn't in there because verse 4 is basically the theme of joy, which is the result of putting this all together and then living it out. So then, John chapter 1, we'll read the first four verses. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we've got one for you. It's blue, it's in the back, and you can pick it up and follow along and even take it home. So we are delighted that you're here. You can also follow along up on the screen. This is the Apostle John's letter to some dear friends of his. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. He says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was from the Father, 
which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. Now, recently we've begun some important discipleship in our children's lives. We're walking them through for the first time the Star Wars trilogy. This is absolutely essential to parenting and important to our lives. Here we are. So, yes, amen, amen. All right, very good. So we were holding back on the Empire Stripes back for a while because there's some scary scenes in it. But they've been begging and begging and begging, verse 4, Lord or Dad, so that our joy may be complete. <laughs> may we please see this film. Please, Dad, make our joy complete. And like, okay, at the right time, we will do this. And so we worked up to this point, and they're ready for the battles, and they're not going to be scared, and blah, 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 blah. And so we walk through this movie having a joyful experience. And one of the important scenes is this. Luke, who is considered a Jedi knight, it's basically like a futuristic knight, he has come to a point where he's realized he needs more training. He needs to learn from a genuine Jedi master. He's discovered his calling and learning about some latent stuff going on inside of him and trying to awaken that. And so he needs someone who is excellent at this to show him how. And so he is driven to this strange and swampy planet on the other side of the universe called Dagobah. Now there, he lands in a big mess and his ship is wrecked, and he's looking around. He's like, man, this is not what I expected. It's not a great big castle. There's no mighty warrior. Where's the king? I don't get it. This is a mess. And all of a sudden, some little furry, green-skinned, big-eared dude walks up to him. And he's like, ah, what are you doing? Get out of my stuff. I'm on a mission. Come on, don't bother me. And this little guy's asking him, what, where, who are you looking for? Well, a great warrior. A Jedi Knight, a power. And the guy's like, oh, okay, I can introduce you to him. Over time, what becomes clear is, in fact, this little green booger is, in fact, the Jedi Master himself. He begins to walk Luke through this process of discovering the power in the universe. He says, okay, it's not something you can feel. It's not something you can hear. You can't touch it. It's not tangible, but if you... Empty your mind of everything. If you meditate, if you focus, then you will come in contact with this spiritual nebulous force that sort of pervades everything. Now, by the way, that's Eastern mysticism. That is not Christianity. But here is the way this is being introduced via Hollywood in this fictional science fiction story. And as a result, Luke begins to come in contact with it and experience it But the Apostle John is saying to us this morning, let me show you the difference between our religion and theirs. That whole philosophy is nothing new. Instead, that is a a New Testament, first century idea of Gnosticism or Docetism, either or, that matter is evil, spiritual is good, that which is tangible is bad, and the intangible is good, so you've got to rid yourself of all of that. And John the Apostle is saying, absolutely no. To all these people who are trying to distract and dissuade you New Testament Christians with their 
higher knowledge, their secret theories, their Illuminati, their whatever, that is bunk. Instead, what we have is something real, something physical, something tangible. That that which was from the very beginning, that life force, that all-powerful, everywhere-present thing, that actually became flesh. And we have seen it, and we have heard it, and we have touched it. We have experienced this firsthand. That eternal life became human. So then, the readers must say to themselves, well, wow, that's crazy because we thought it was just some strange nebulous force. What is it, this force, this life force? And the apostle and, and other writers in the New Testament make it very clear. That, that thing that we refer to that gives everything else life, that holds everything together, is not some force, but it's actually a person. The person of Jesus The Christ. That is why the author of Colossians says it like this, absolutely beautifully and poetically. If you need a verse to meditate on this week, here is a good one. Who is Christ? What is this life force? What is it? Colossians 1, verses 16 and following, says concerning Jesus, here is the source of life. For by him all things were created, whether in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers or authorities, whatever you want to call it, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead. And that in everything, in all of this, he might, he must, Be preeminent. For in him, in this tangible human being, all the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether thrones, whether earth or on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his of his on the cross. In other words, what he's basically saying to you is Jesus is it. Jesus is everything. Jesus is that eternal, unstoppable, life-sustaining, life-giving force. And he does this, he provides this through his death on the cross and resurrection. That is why in the New Testament, when Jesus has conversations with people, they're really funny. They're enigmatic and they're strange, like the woman at the well. And he comes up to the Samaritan woman, he's been walking for a long time, and he's thirsty. Why? Because he's physical. But he's also God. And so at the same time, he says to her, hey, can you give me a drink? And she's like, "Uh, why are you talking to me? He said, well, I'm thirsty and I want a drink. But you're a Jew. Well, so you're a Samaritan. Well, Jews don't give Samaritans, or Samaritans don't give Jews drinks. Aha. That's because you think I'm just a Jew. But if you actually knew who I fully am, then you would be asking me for something other than water. Instead, what you would want is what I can give, and only I. That is the water that will become in you a spring of water, welling up into eternal life. I am the source. I am the stuff. 
I am it. Jesus is the source of eternal life. Now, what is the quality like? The quality is something entirely different. Why? Because when I say life, what you think of, or what I think of, is hard, work, toil, you know, unmet expectations, unfulfilled desires, effort, sickness, loss, misery, loneliness. Are you encouraged? (laughs) Welcome to life. It's difficult. But this life is of another kind. Listen to the way people talk. They say things like, well, that's just life, you know. What do they mean? Well, life as we experience it now in our fallen state. But that is not what true life or eternal life is. That is the reality of our experience as a result of the fall or the entrance of death and sin into the world. Because of that, therefore, we think this is life. (laughs) But what is actual life? It's of another kind. It is eternal. It is joyful. It is ecstatic. It is the fulfillment of all things in Christ. That is why one author says it like this. And again, put your thinking caps on. Here we go. This is stretching us. What is life? Life is like this. It is of another kind. It is supernatural. Those or they who penetrate the significance, listen to this. These are the things that Jesus did to show you what this is like. Of turning water into wine, of healing miracles, taking care of sickness and sin and death, feeding the multitudes, fulfilling your desires, walking on the waters, defying metaphysics, and raising of Lazarus, conquering dead. That is what life is. People who perceive this in Jesus will see the saving sovereignty of God in action. And Jesus' utterances, his very words, are the words of eternal life. In other words, in the words of And works of Jesus, the eschatological or future purposes of God is both declared and fulfilled all in one. In other words, he is the complete package. And that is why Jesus says in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, he says, Lord, this is life. What is it? Is it the stuff we experience? No, it is greater than that. It is of another kind. It is supernatural. And it is gained via relationship with Him. This is eternal life. What? That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is why the death and burial and resurrection to walk in the newness of life are so essential. Via your identification or vicarious identification with Christ, you experience now eternal life. Life of a quality of a different kind that you could ever have on your own. Because Jesus is life. And by being crucified and risen with Him, then He kills the bad, brings out the good, and walks in the new. And that is how you walk in the newness of of life. This is life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Verse 1, or sorry, that's verse 2. 
It is of a different kind, different duration, different quality, different source. Now, back to verse 1. Verse 1 talks about that which was from the beginning. And he says several things like that which we have seen, that which we have heard, that which we have touched, that which we, you know, all these different things. Think of it like this. The other day on Valentine's Day, um, there were some questions circulating in our home. And the question was, what special dessert should mom make for Valentine's Day? Now, I knew what my vote was going to be. Chocolate truffles. There it is. That's the stuff for me. But there's several other votes in the family, and dad lost out. So it ended up being chocolate cake. Oh, man. Right? So I mourned my losses and went on with life. Right? And then a few weeks later, I'm surprised as I come home and one of the kids come busting through the door like, Dad, Dad, we made the chocolate truffles. I'm like, yes, that is a perfect use of a snow day. I love it. Great. Time for chocolate truffles. And for me, there is a difference here. You see, in the first case, what I could say is I really like chocolate truffles. I think they're really cool. I can see them on the cover page of the Food and Family magazine and they're all drizzled with different stuff, and they look pretty, and they're really nice. But for those, for that imagery, for that intangible thing to actually become a physical substance so that all the Oreos are ground and pounded in, and the mint goes in, and the sour cream, and then the drizzled chocolate on top, that when I take my first bite of that chocolate truffle, I can feel the sugar high energy flowing through my veins. It is an amazing and glorious experience. It is outstanding. That is what you experience when something intangible and surreal and supernatural becomes physical. And the apostle is saying, hey, look, there's this intangible, supernatural life force. And you Gnostics or you Star Wars people are only focused on that But through Christ, what has happened is that the intangible has become tangible, the untouchable, touchable, the spiritual, physical, the divine, human, and the infinite, spatial. All of these things are wrapped up in one person to such an extent that I have actually seen it. I have seen it with my own eyes. And it's real. Historically verifiable, legally arguable. Proof, first person, first hand witnesses, I am one. I've seen it. And not only have I seen it, but I've heard it. Let me tell you, that is something different. When you hear Jesus talk, it is unlike anything else. I mean, there's teachers, and then there's teachers, and then there's Jesus. And wow, when you listen to his words, the room goes quiet. And people hang on every word. We've heard it. And this is the testimony that was given to you. These words of life that didn't just stop with a classroom lecture, but instead carry power to this very day. These words of Christ can change you. We have seen it. We've heard it. And we have beheld it. We have gazed upon it. We have looked We have been overwhelmed by the supernatural beauty of this person. We have stood 
on the mountaintop and gazed not at the valley or the lake or the trees or the snow, but at Christ and said, wow, that is something we can't take our eyes off of. There is Jesus. We have heard, we have seen, we have beheld, and finally, we have touched. We've touched. Now, when I hear this word, it immediately brings back the uh, passage to mind about Thomas and his experience with Christ after the resurrection. Those who are familiar with the New Testament will know this story. Those who are not, you'll probably get a kick out of it because basically this is a guy who's like from Missouri or something. He's just like, I am not going to believe it unless you show me. Missouri's called the show me state, all right? I am you I mean you guys are cool, we're tight and all, but I am not in unless I see, I hear, I touch for myself. I don't know, perhaps his love language was physical touch, I don't know, whatever. But Thomas wants to see Christ in person. So this is what happens in John chapter 20, verse 26. Jesus had appeared to them once already behind closed doors just out of nowhere. And all of a sudden he does it again. And, he's, and this time Thomas is with him. It says this, Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus just came and stood among them and said, Peace to you. Now, here's what's really cool. Even though Jesus wasn't physically present with Thomas when he said this to the other guys, Jesus already knew what was going on inside of his heart. And so he answers the questions of his heart. Just like he will come and meet you and answer the questions of your heart as well. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it at my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Through Thomas's vicarious identification with Jesus Christ. He began to experience the reality of eternal life in him flowing through his veins in a very real way. And now, John the Apostle is writing to his dearly beloved children, fellow saints in the kingdom of God, and saying, look, we want you to have that experience. That is why we're writing that which is from the beginning, we've seen it, we've heard it with our, own, with our own ears, seen it with our eyes, looked upon it, and touched the very word of life. We want you to experience Christ. We said earlier that the theme of the book of John is this. It is koinonia. It is a purpose-driven, missional community filled with life, light, and love. We've talked a little bit this morning about life. As we move through the book, we're going to talk about light and love. But let us look now at that Greek word, koinonia, or fellowship. Verse 3. So we've done verse 1, verse 2, and now we're coming, or verse 2, verse 1, now we're coming to verse 3. Koinonia, the fellowship. Verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. Now, when we think about fellowship, uh, depending on which denominational background 
you're from. No offense, Baptist. But what you will think of when you hear this term is probably food. We're going to get together for some fellowship. That means it's time to eat. We're going to gather around the table. We're going to bring, I don't know, apple pie. And we're going to share it with our friends. We're going to fellowship. As a result, what happens in the Christian mind is sometimes we think of fellowship in a very shallow way. We think it means just a casual exchange amongst people we know having a little bit of fun. But the reality is the New Testament word for fellowship, this koinonia, is much bigger. What it includes is not only relationship, but also partnership. So that, for example, if you're starting a, uh, like a fantasy football team or a real football team or a baseball team or whatever, you're starting a sports team, what will happen is you are gathering together players for a specific purpose. You want to win. Now, within that realm, what's going to happen is you're going to say, okay, on the field... None of this stuff matters. I don't care if you're black, white, purple, green, or in between. The goal is to score a touchdown. So if you can catch the ball, I'm going to throw it to you. That's a team. Now, as a result of that participation in the same purpose, there may be relationships that form. That'll happen. There'll be relationships on the field, and it'll grow naturally and organically to form relationships off the field. And that's cool. But ultimately, the purpose of that team is not just to have a common association for relationship, but it's to be on mission, to win the game. Well, so too in the church. We are here because we've been given a specific mandate by Jesus Christ himself to go, therefore, into all the nations and make disciples, and that is our mission. And so we're here to do that, and when we come together, it doesn't matter, black, green, purple, white, whatever, The goal is to make disciples. And so you get on board with that mission, and as you're participating in that together, naturally, relationships begin to form. And there are some that will be just mission-driven, and there will be others that are, in fact, go beyond these four walls. But ultimately, what is our purpose? It is a partnership. It is a koinonia, a group of people on a mission. In other words, we are a Life group, okay? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we at our church sometimes get a little discouraged because we may feel like life groups become cliquish or they're not missional enough. In other words, we think they become uh, internal and they're not open to outsiders or doing things. Not everyone does that. I get that, but that's the stereotype, okay? But in reality, What happens is this, is this text is focused on life, right? Real life, eternal life, Jesus, the Christ. That is our association. That's what brings us together is Jesus. And then we become a group who is on mission to promote that life. That is what makes us a koinonia, a fellowship, or a life group. Now, I'll tell you a funny little story here. Back, back when I was in a small town, about 1,400 people, I'm pastoring and, and I'm checking into you know, people and saying, hey, are you available to do this? Are you available to do that? And so often I'd get the response, well, I'd like to, but I have the garden club on that night. 
Well, okay, what about the next night? Oh, that's the parent-teacher association. Oh, okay, I'm glad you're involved in that. What about the next night? Ooh, actually, that's PEO. Okay, well, what about the next night? And we'd go through like the whole month, and they've got meetings on every night of the week. Now, they're all good stuff, but ultimately, they're very different from the church because all of those clubs are associating around a common interest like uh, sewing or crochet or sports or whatever, but they are not on mission to promote Jesus Christ. They are not a true life group. In other words, the church is not a club. It is not a group of people associating around common interests or demographics or whatever. The church is a team on mission. And we say we are going forth on purpose to win this game, and Christ assures us that we will. We are a true, eternal life group. So what does that look like? Well, Step one is to join the team, become part of the church, you know, pursue membership, grow, be involved. And as you do so, yes, relationships will form, but ultimately those are not the end goal. Instead, the end goal is to let that spill over and share it with someone else. So in other words, what I'm saying to you today is this. I think if the Apostle John was to write a book, let's just imagine he did, and he would entitle it, How to Make a Koinonia and See the World. What are the key ingredients to a church? Life, light, and love. And what happens when you have those ingredients? Well, you stir them all together and you come up with this beautiful thing. But if you grab that and huddle in the corner and just savor it and eat it all to yourself, then there is no joy. But if instead you take that thing, this church, this life, this light, this love, and you go outside and you share it with whomever you find, then your joy is complete. Do you see the biblical imagery here? This is not our fellowship around food, but God's eternal banquet around His Son. And what you do is you take Him out into the streets of Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth and you share Him and invite others to that banquet. And if the first person doesn't come, then you knock on the next door and you knock on the next door and you go out in the streets until you fill that wedding feast with people. And when everybody has then come in, you say, wow, isn't this great? This is so wonderful that we can experience the life, the light, and the love of God in perfect partnership on mission with one another. That which we have seen and heard and beheld and touched, that life, this Jesus, we give to you. It's a big world out there. It's one thing to travel around it for the purpose of apple pie, but it's a whole nother to share the gospel. How then should we live? In koinonia, in fellowship with one another, partnering together as a group on mission 
to share the life, light, and love of God. Father, you're a good and gracious God. You do everything well and do everything just right. Sometimes, indeed, we get stuck and we just want to eat the pie ourselves. And it's enjoyable and it's good and we thank you for those gifts, but we know ultimately it's so much better if we share it with others. And so we pray, God, as we come together, each of us, different stripes, different folks, whatever, that we would come together and truly be a team in partnership on mission for you. Thank you for your gospel, for your light, your life, and your love. And we thank you for your blessed Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.